sharing. And I felt like that the Lord was really speaking to me some things very specifically, laid some things in my heart. And so I've spent the last uh, uh, few weeks thinking about this, um, uh, reading, researching, just spending a lot of time thinking about this message. And so we're just going to trust that the Lord, what the Lord has been laying on my heart, He's going to be able to communicate to us together today. Amen? Um, last night, I actually, a lot of times when I'm doing a message or a series, as I think about it, I will, I will, I will work on a graphic, and uh, I didn't do that this time, and so last night I was like, oh, I need a graphic, and so I started thinking about it, to put one together, and, and, and when I was done, I was kind of like, wow, that's not very Eastery. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Um, and then I thought, well, you know, people who really know me, you know, they didn't expect Easter bunnies. Okay, so people who know me, this is not a huge shock for them. Um, we need to think not just ab about the, the what is Easter. We know the story, most of us. We need to think about the why. And then... The implication, and remember, with every revelation, every time you hear something, a revelation from God, every time something is revealed to you, with every revelation, there are implications. Okay? And then there is the application. So the implications are like, okay, so what does that mean? And a lot of what I have in my heart today is not just to talk about the, the cross and his crucifixion, but why? And what does that mean? And what do I do about that? Because it can't just be a, another day in which we celebrate. It's kind of a holiday, right? Some of you got time off work, school. But it can't just be another kind of empty religious celebration. We need to think through the implications and the application. And I want to suggest that the message of Easter is more relevant today than it's ever been. That people need to hear the message of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection. People are desperate today to hear the message. We live in a society, we live in a world filled with, with wounded and bruised people. We encounter them on a regular basis. We're witnesses every day to the mess, just the measures of suffering in our world from moderate to incomprehensible, unbearable. I mean, think the school shootings in Nashville. Just incomprehensible, un unbearable suffering. And we want to tell ourselves that these horrors are caused by the actions of wicked people. Those things only happen somewhere else. But the truth of the matter is, is that these events in our world happen, it can happen anywhere, everywhere. And they're not just the actions of, of bad people, but often they're accompanied by the indifference and inaction of good people. The indifference. 
the carelessness. You know, Dallas Willard, one of my spiritual heroes, was asked a number of years ago, he said, what do you say about the school, a school shooting? I mean, at that time, it was, I think, uh, uh, the one in Connecticut. Terrible, terrible tra- tragedy. And, and, he, and he was asked, what do you say about that? How can God allow this to happen? How, how, why does this happen? And Dallas responded by saying, you shouldn't wonder why it happened. You should be asking, why doesn't it happen every single day? Why isn't it happening every single day? Because that's the kind of world we live in. That's the kind of brokenness that is is so pervasive. It's everywhere. For some people, they allow the question of pain and suffering, the question of pain and suffering to be kind of a proof against God, which is really just lazy thinking, to be honest with you. Because it's actually more of a proof for God. See, for me, I've never questioned God's existence because there's suffering in the world. That's quite the opposite. I mean, it, nothing has aroused my, my thirst for meaning in life. Nothing more so than just the absurdities that are in this world. Just looking at the open wounds and life sorrows. There has to be a God. I remember in 2006... I believe it was 2006, I had come back uh, from Cambodia. I'm going to tell you a couple of stories today. I come back from Cambodia, and I'd only been back from Cambodia a few days, and it was Easter. And I remember we went to uh, my my father-in-law's sister. Uh, We went to their house, a beautiful house over on Christmas Lake, and uh, the family was all gathered. and, And this is a a pretty proper home, right? I mean, a beautiful home right on the lake, and everybody's there kind of dressed up. And, and, uh, and, and um, uh, my wife's uncle was, the head of the household was out, and he was grilling steaks, and I was out helping him. And he's like, oh, you know, where you been recently? I said, oh, I just came back from Cambodia. And he's like, well, why don't you tell me about it? And I remember having this thought. This thought came to me, you don't want me to do that. No, really. Tell me about it. It's going to ruin your Easter. (laughs) Now, come on. Tell me about your recent trip. Well, while I was there, we visited the killing fields where the communists killed almost two million people. And in order to save bullets, most of them were just beat to death. Two million people. Buried them in mass graves. Yay, communists. And we went because how can you understand the the corporate suffering of a people if you don't know what they've been through? Nobody. I mean, this is recent history. Nobody alive at that point did not have a grandfather, grandmother, great uncle, or aunt that wasn't killed, that didn't die in the killing fields. We spent an entire day in a village known to be the epicenter for all human trafficking in the world. They trafficked humans 
through this village from all over the world. At that time, it was considered the epicenter. We were there volunteering with a small church that had been started. Can you imagine starting a church in a place like that? We spent our day holding kind of our morning, holding kind of a, a little outreach for the children. These children are between the ages of five and 11. And we're playing balloons with them and there's coloring and face painting and we're telling them about Jesus all the while with this sick feeling on the inside of us knowing that those same children will be trafficked that night. Sexually abused, five-year-olds, those same children. It, it produced a, a kind of mental and physical and even moral nausea to, to be interacting with these children and knowing that there's nothing that you can do to stop that. A helplessness kind of hangs over you. And here we are sharing about Jesus, sharing about faith, sharing about God's love. But see, I don't believe in a God I don't believe in a faith that just skips through the world unaffected by its pain and suffering. And, and again, I think it's lazy and disingenuous just to blame God for that. As if we have no part to play. I have no tolerance, I have no tolerance for a church that exists and is unaffected by the pain and the suffering that is in our world. A church, a faith without scars, without stripes, without bruises, without burns, preaching a message of self-indulgence and consumer Christianity. This is to miss the point of the cross entirely. Why do you think the society has replaced, I mean, we still tolerate the cross, right? But there's generally plenty of bunny rabbits and Easter eggs to offset it. Why did we have to, why did we have to reach to such absurd links? Bunny rabbits and Easter eggs. Anything to tone down the real, true message of Easter. Anything to keep us from having to feel the, the, the weight of it, the moral weight of it, the spiritual weight of it. You see, when we think about Easter, we are forced to consider God, the creator God. We are forced to face the perfect, righteous God who proved just how much he loved the world. John 3.16, it says, he gave his son, his one and only son. And, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. Hear me, no one needs to be destroyed. By believing in them, anyone, anyone can have a whole and lasting life, anyone. You see, the message of Easter begins with our God stepping out of heaven 
and into our world of pain. A world we created. And again, you can say, I'm not responsible for that kind of sin in the world. We are responsible. Again, either directly or indirectly. And for many in the church, it's just our simple indifference to it. It's our indifference to the suffering. It's, we are so, and listen, we are so self-absorbed with our own lives and our own problems, and I'm not minimizing anybody's life or anybody's problems. But I want you to know there are people in this world who suffer infinitely more. And all I'm asking is, or all I'm suggesting maybe, is that the cross of Christ, the suffering of Christ, includes both your woundedness and theirs. There. That's the point I want to make today. That we cannot miss the reality of the suffering that is in the world. And the reality, as Mel stated, we have an answer. We have an answer. And it is this. God stepped out of heaven. He stepped into our world. He became one of us. He became one with us. Our sympathetic God, the one who feels with us, who suffers with us. See, that's kind of the point of all those who paint God into a corner as being apathetic or careless. No, quite the opposite. He is not careless about our pain. He enters our pain. That's the point of life, of Christ's own life. He entered our pain. He couldn't be he couldn't be more concerned about what concerns you. He enters your life. He enters your pain. He becomes a part of us, who we are, what we are. That's how much God loves us. Philippians chapter 2. And I want to lay a bit of groundwork. You need to understand the foundation here. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 says, Though he, and I'm going to put it up here, though he, Jesus, was God. Now, I don't have time to talk about the, uh, the Trinity, the hypostatic union, all the theology here. Okay? But Jesus was God. Though he was God, that is assumed, he did not think equality with God is something to cling to. So understand, Jesus has always been God, but at the incarnation, he became a human being. Incarnation means to take flesh. He became flesh. So he has always been God, is always, will always be God, but he became something more. He became a human being. The addition of the human nature to the divine nature is Jesus. That's the God-man. This is Jesus, one person who is fully God and fully man. Look at this quote. He possessed all the majesty of deity. Okay? So here's kind of a theology in a sentence. He possessed all the majesty of deity. He performed all of its functions. He enjoyed all of its prerogatives. He was adored by his father, worshipped by the angels. He was invulnerable to pain, frustration, and embarrassment. He existed in 
unclouded serenity. His supremacy was total. His satisfaction was complete. His blessedness was perfect. Such a condition was not something he had secured by effort. It was the way things were and had always been. And there was no reason for them to change. And yet he stepped away from that. To become a man. So Jesus is born. He grows up and he has these two natures, human and divine, and they're inseparable. He does so so that he can, for two reasons among many, he can fully relate to us as humans. You're never going to be able to stand before God and say, you don't know what it was like to be human. Because Jesus is going to go, uh, I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. You don't know how hard it was. You don't know what I went through. Yeah, I do. And that's the point. That's the point. He had to become fully human because only as a human could he sacrifice himself for our sin. See, here was the kind of the theological dilemma, Kevin. He, we had a system of sacrifices in place where sin could be atoned for by the blood of animals, but how can the blood of animals ever satisfy the claims of justice upon human? And so someone, a human, had to pay the price for man's sin. But of course that human had to be sinless. Had to be perfect in order to be qualified as a substitute. Jesus was qualified. He was himself sinless. So Jesus, humanity and divinity together. Look at this next quote. So remaining what he was, fully God, he became what he was not. In other words, while Jesus continued remaining what he was, that is fully divine, he also became what he previously had not be, been, that is fully human as well. Jesus did not give up any of his deity when he became man, but he did take on humanity that was not his before. Jesus becomes a man. So verse 7 continues and says, Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. The glory of all of this is that the self-emptying, humble one never ceases to be God. He never ceases to be God. Indeed, it's, it's his full, the full revelation of his character on display. Graham Kendrick wrote a, wrote a wonderful song, a hymn that says, this is our God, our servant king. And those two words most fully Communicate what is being said here in Philippians chapter 2. He was our servant king, the one who gave his life for us. Augustine said, 
by becoming a man, Jesus did not lose anything. Rather, he added the humanity to his divinity. See, there's a reason. You're going to see in a minute why I'm laying this foundation. He's fully God. He's fully man. Let me give you another quote. The triune God of the Bible has existed and reigned from all eternity. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, took on human flesh. At a particular point in time, God the Son added a sinless human nature to his eternally existent divine nature. The result was the incarnation. John, and we're going to spend some time reading in the, in the Gospel of John today. John, in, in the very beginning, in the prologue of his epistle, writes this. John 1, verse 1. In the very beginning, the living expression was already there. And the living expression was with God, yet fully God. He's speaking about Jesus. They were together, face to face, in the very beginning. Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. You go back to Philippians chapter 2, and in verse 9, he concludes our reading from Philippians. Therefore... Because Jesus did this, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why we worship. That's what I was exhorting the children with this morning. That's why we worship, because God became man and dwelled among us. He sacrificed himself for our own sinfulness. The one who came as a slave is now elevated. He is now elevated to Lord. He is the Lord of all. And the Bible says here very clearly that the day will come. The day will come when every tongue, every human will bow before him. Everyone will confess. There will be no more duplicity. There will be no more lies. Even in, our, even in rebellion, we will be made to acknowledge that He is the Son of God, the Lord Christ, the one who gave His life for our sin. So now remember, remember, as we proceed to the, to the Easter message, remember, it was God that became man. It was God that was arrested. It was God that was turned over to the Romans to be crucified. Look at John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe. They went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. 
Think about this. Think about this. And I have a series of slides that are just going to kind of accompany the rest of our message. Think about this. It was God that they took and flogged. It was God that they mocked. It was God that they abused. It was God that they beat. It was God who suffered for us in our place. It was God that they did this to. And yet Pilate says, here is a man. That is all he is. To Pilate, to the estimation of those in the world, he is just a man. Look at Pilate's statement. Here is the man. He points at Jesus, who's now been transformed. Go ahead, my slides, guys, in the back, please. The slides that I gave you, Ethan. Thank you. Here is the man as he points to Jesus, who's transformed into a lump of bleeding flesh. It is a representation of man, humanity, human existence in its extreme, in its weakness, forsakenness, pain, and helplessness, before which people avert their gaze in horror. A poor wretch who himself would say in the Psalms, I am a worm, not a human, scorned by others, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They sneer at me. They shake their heads. All glory and power and dignity and human grandeur, they're gone. See, this is humanity as one big bleeding wound. This is humanity. See, do we understand that they did this to him? Not because of anything that he had done, but for us. This was man. This was us. This is me. This is you. Every one of us wounded. Every one of us broken. Every one of us bruised. This is me. A man. And so Pilate turns him over to the Jews. And the Romans crucify him. Just the act of being turned over, being passed over. Look at this quote. Here is a man facing the abyss of death. He's no longer in charge of himself. He's totally manipulated by the malice of others. He's entirely delivered into the hands of his enemies. He's tied with cords like an object. This image illustrates the lowest point of human existence, stripped of all embellishments, and all support. No one probably saw more clearly the spiritual significance of what Jesus was doing in his sacrifice than Isaiah. Isaiah wrote 700 years, 700 years before Jesus died on the cross. Isaiah recorded in detail what he would endure. 700 years before. He recorded in detail. Isaiah chapter 53, <coughs> verse 4, 
says, surely he took up our infirmities, which can be translated literally as a sickness. He carried our sorrows, our pains. Yet we mistakenly considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. See, both of these verbs, verbs, both of these, to carry and to take up, talk about bearing. Something is laid upon him. The suffering that he endured, our sickness, our pains were literally being laid upon him. The Message Bible says, but the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. Verse 5. But he was pierced. He was wounded for our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed. He was bruised. He was beat to pieces. Listen, the the images, if you put the images back up, the images are, don't, don't even do it justice what they did to him. Do you know the Spanish translation says he was shredded? He was shredded. The extent of his suffering was so great. I mean, in some ways, when Pilate presents him as a man, it's as if he's saying, he's just a man. Does he deserve this? I mean, have pity on him. Look at him. The Romans had nearly beat him to death. And the Bible says it was for our sins. He was crushed, he was bruised, he was beaten. It was for our iniquities. The punishment that was needed to provide our peace and our well-being was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. See, by his wounds. He was wounded for you and I. He was wounded on our behalf. The Message Bible says in verse 5, but it was our sins that did that to him. Our sins. That's the point of Easter. It wasn't just the sins of the world collectively. It was our sins. It was my sin that did that to him. I have to face the reality that I I may not like it. I may not have. I didn't ask him to do it. I didn't want him to do it, but he did it. And that's the way of love. See, that's the way of love. There is no prid quo, quo, quid pro quo, no kind of exchange. He didn't say in advance, I'll do this for you if you do that for me. No, see, real love, there is no quid pro quo. He says, I love you, therefore. So reject me? Fine. So ignore me? Fine. But I did it anyway. It was still your sin. And it was still my sacrifice. The message says he took the punishment that made us whole through his bruises we get healed. Verse 6. All of us 
like sheep have gone astray. We have each turned to his own way. See, no one was not in need of saving. No one. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has rebelled. Everyone has rejected God. All of us were in need of being saved. But the Lord has caused the wickedness of us all, our sin, our injustice, our wrongdoing, to fall upon Him instead. Think about the implication of that. Look at this quote. This is the measure. This is the measure of how seriously God takes our rebellion and our crookedness. We typically wish to make light of our shortcomings, to explain away our mistakes. But God will have none of it. The refusal of humanity to bow to the Creator's rule and our insistence on drawing up our own moral codes that pander to our lusts. They're not shortcomings. They're not mistakes. They're the stuff of death and corruption. And unless someone can be found to stand in our place, they will see us impaled on the swords of our own making and broken on the racks of our own design. You see, the point he's making in this quote is if Christ had not intervened, we, each one of us would self-destruct. Each one of us, we would live a life that ended in our own demise. <coughs> but no, someone has been found. Someone has taken on himself the results of our rebelliousness. And we in turn have been given the keys to the kingdom. Go back to Isaiah 53. Verse 7, he was beaten, he was tortured, the message Bible says, and yet he never said a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, like a sheep that was being sheared, he took it all in silence. Verse 8, he was arrested and sentenced and led off to die, and no one cared about his fate. He was put to death for the sins of our people. Verse 9, they buried him with the wicked. They threw him <coughs> in a grave with rich men, even though he had never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Verse 10, still it was God's will. It's what God had in mind all along to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he had see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan would deeply prosper through him. What an astonishing record. Such detail. But the Bible says that God would not abandon him Psalm 16, verse 10 says, God would not abandon him to hell. Neither the world nor the place of the dead. No, on the third day, God raised him from the dead. Turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. 
after his death, his burial, his resurrection, Mel shared already this morning about the, the, the women, Mary and others that had come to the tomb. That was the first sighting of Jesus, or excuse me, the first, the first information we receive about Jesus after his resurrection. And then Jesus begins to appear to his disciples. You know, it's interesting because people all throughout the first century, I mean, there were literally, and, and you need to understand this, there were literally hundreds of people who saw Jesus after his resurrection. Hundreds of eyewitnesses. We know that there were almost more than 500 people who saw him, and the number was probably higher than that. More than 500 eyewitnesses. In a court of law today, how many eyewitnesses do you need? If you have one, two, three eyewitnesses, two eyewitnesses to a crime, there were 500 eyewitnesses that could testify that Jesus, who was crucified, was now alive. Look, one of the things that we have to grapple with in our world today is that we should not, in kind of this post-scientific, uh, post-Christian you know, world, we should not be afraid to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have more evidence of the reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ than almost any other historical event. People say, oh, I still don't believe in it. <laughs> and generally, they're the same people who believe the earth is flat. <laughs> okay? It is a historical fact that he lived and that he died and that he was raised from the dead. Now again, you have to wrestle with that. I'm simply stating the facts. On one occasion in John 20 verse 24, now Thomas Didymus, one of the 12, had not been with the disciples when Jesus had earlier appeared to them. And so the other disciples tell him, we've seen the Lord. We have seen him. And Thomas responds. And, and so many of us, we've heard this before. We know the response. Thomas responds and says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, unless I put my finger where the nails were, and I put my hand in his side, I will not believe was this obstinance i mean thomas gets a raw deal right i mean i think thomas we think of doubting thomas i mean ever have you ever heard that name attributed to him doubting thomas but and yet thomas may have done more for faith than any of the apostles later in life because thomas represents our own doubts our own fears our own questions Thomas doubts, but was it a lack of faith? One, one historian suggests that, no, it wasn't a lack of faith. He just wanted to make sure that the resurrection had not emptied the cross of its meaning. That he still had scars. That he still bore the wounds. Do you know to this day, Christ bears the scars. When you see Christ in heaven, when you meet Christ in eternity, the first thing you will see are those scars. That's the first thing you will see. 
is he still bears those scars as a reminder. I did this for you. The only reason you can stand before me is because of this. I was wounded for you, mortally. I shed my blood. I died for you. John 20, verse 26, a week later, the disciples were in the house again. And this time Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, come here, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. He says to Thomas, and this is the amazing thing, and I'm going to begin to close with this. This is the amazing thing. He says to Thomas, my, look at me, my wounds prove my love. My wounds. You see, his identity, his own identity are those wounds they're proof of who he is. There's an old story about a, a, an early church father. His name is known as St. Martin. And the story goes that the devil appeared to St. Martin in order to deceive him. He came to St. Martin in the image of Jesus. He says, I am the Christ. And Martin responded to him, show me your wounds. Show me your wounds. Show me your hands. Show me. You see, it's how we know the Christ. Look at me. Look at me. There are a lot of Christs running around. There are a lot of religious leaders, a lot of religious heads, a lot of religions in the world. Show me the wounds. Show me just how much he loved. Show me. Show me the wounds. Show me what he suffered. Because it's love, listen to me, it's love that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. They are not the same. They are not equal. It is love that distinguishes him. No, the wounds are the proof of his identity. The wounded Christ is the real and living Christ. You see, Jesus identified with us all the small, all the suffering, all the hurting. And all the painful wounds and all the human misery in the world, they were Christ's wounds. That's what he suffered. He suffered on behalf of the world. He suffered. He was bruised. He was shredded. He was beat to pieces. He suffered. He died for this world. And how, look, at, look at Thomas's words. Verse 28, my Lord and my God. Pilate looked upon this mass of flesh and said, he's only a man. And here standing before Thomas 
with his wounds. He is God. No, he is God. I can only believe, I want to share a couple of quotes with you. I can only believe in Christ and the right to exclaim my Lord and my God if I touch his wounds. To which our world is still filled. Unless I see the wounds, I am incapable of uttering the words my God and call Lord, Lord. It's just simply in vain. You see, if we do not understand that it is Christ and the reason he suffered, if we do not see the wounds, if we do not relate to them, if they are not our own, and not only our own, but those of the world, we're missing the entire point of Easter. It's just another celebration, it's another Sunday. Unless we see the wounds. He shows us his wounds and he gives us the courage not to conceal our own, but to recognize that it's our own wounds in which he bears. Let us not ignore the unhealed wounds within ourselves. Let us acknowledge the healing that he offers to us and is offering to heal the world. Let that be a prerequisite because if we are to be sensitive to the suffering of others, we must first recognize those wounds what he has done for us. The resurrection is not just a happy end, but it's an invitation, it's a challenge. We ought not, indeed must not. Look, we cannot surrender to the hopelessness that's in this world. We have to carry the message of his resurrection, the story of his suffering. We have to strive against the sickness that is in this world. We have to have the faith to fight back. Let me share this quote with you. But can a faith that bears no nail marks, no gaping wounds, a faith that cautiously avoids the killing fields, those types of places, can that kind of faith heal the wounded world? In the presence of evil, we must not behave as if it should not have, we, excuse me, in the presence of evil, we must not behave as if it should have the last word. Let us not be afraid to believe in love. Let us have courage to take our chances with the folly of the cross in the face of the wisdom of this world. We have to be able to stand against the suffering that is in this world. One last story. A number of years ago, I was in Macedonia, Eastern European country. And while in Macedonia, I was asked if we would go visit a children's home. This is a home for children nobody wants. Nobody wants these children. Most of them have disabilities. They're blind. They might be uh, mildly cognitively delayed. They might, there may be Down syndrome. 
they may be severely disabled. Now, please listen to me. I said, sure, we'll go visit this home. Nothing could have prepared me for what I experienced because it wasn't a home. It was like a prison. There were bars, high gates, people just running loose, running wild, just... We went inside and children were kept in cages, literally like chicken coops. Nobody wanted them. Nobody wanted to have to see them. In some cases, they were just locked in rooms, naked, just. And all I wanted to do was run. All I wanted to do was get away from that. I didn't want to see it. I don't want to know about it. But see, how can I call myself a Christian and ignore? How can I not care? How can, how can I call myself human? And I'm more concerned with, with my cell phone and my friends and TikTok than I care about suffering human beings. How can I, what am I? I felt like a famous story of one of the brothers, the brothers Karamazov, who wanted to give God back the entrance ticket to this world because he did not live, want to live in a world in which children suffered like that. I mean, I have healthy skin and a healthy life and control of my faculties. And we want to turn the other way. But see, it's his wounds. He suffered and died for me in the same way he suffered and died for them, for their pain and for their suffering. And in that moment, I had this thought, if all I can do is stand here and smile at him. I remember there was this one little little boy. He kept walking around. He had Down syndrome. He kept walking around and just taking my hand. And every time he could, he would just put my hand on his head. Because he just wanted to be touched. And if all I could do was touch them, pray for them, see, we cannot ignore what Christ paid such a high price. He took those wounds. He suffered on our behalf for me, but for them. For me, but for you. All of those places and all those people, wherever there is suffering, we have to recognize that the reality of the cross to us this day is that resurrection, his resurrected body, the one that still bears those wounds. As a reminder, I did this for the world. I did this for the world.
One last quote. See, I believe I have no right to proclaim a belief in God unless I take seriously my neighbor's pain. The author says what I'm urging is non-indifference. Non-indifference. And I, I want you today as you leave, I want you to think, I just want that one word, if nothing else, sticks in your mind. It's, it's the word non-indifference. I want you to have the courage to see the suffering that's in this world and rightly relate it to the wounds that he bore. Everyone must decide for themselves whether, how, to what extent, and where specifically they want and can get involved in the efforts of healing human wounds, assuming, of course, that you're capable of perceiving them. But if anything, our Christianity should require of us a, this word right here, a non-indifference. We cannot simply be indifferent. We have to fight against that urge to look away, to be careless, to be trivial. Human lives matter. The price that he paid is, is grander than anything on any scale imaginable. And we each one have to wrestle with what we do with it in our own lives as it relates to us our own forgiveness, our own salvation, and those that are in this world. We're going to conclude today uh, by receiving communion. Um, I'm going to have our ushers, if you would, just come. I'm going to say just a couple of quick words as we're closing, and then we'll receive communion. Um, you need to understand the significance of communion. Um, you can just stand right there. The Bible tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took uh, bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body that will be broken for you. He took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood that was shed on your behalf. So communion is not um, a snack at the end of service. We have cookies and coffee for that. Communion, the Bible says, is a participation in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is a serious and a solemn thing. It is an acknowledgement of the wounds. It is acknowledgement of everything you suffered and everything that he has done for you. And so I'm going to ask the ushers to distribute the elements. They'll pass them out. If you'd like to receive communion with us, you are welcome to. I just need you to understand the significance. You guys can go ahead and start passing the elements. Um, let me grab one real quick, Jerry. Thank you. And when you, once you've received the elements, if you just hold them, we'll receive communion together. Um, 
It's important that as you take the communion elements, that just, just for a moment, just close your eyes and think about the message this morning. Think about the significance of Christ's sacrifice. Think about what, what uh, Christ has done for you, the meaning of the sacrifice.